welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to Sleep Talk. This is episode 39 and welcome Moira. Hello. So this episode, the theme is menopause and the impact that menopause can have on sleep. So we'll get to that in a little while. But what have you been working on recently, Moira? Well, we're preparing for the Sleep Down Under Australasian Sleep Association Conference, which is in Sydney this year in October. All those of you listening who may be eligible to or available to go, I really recommend you try and go to that conference. It's our, you know, our annual scientific conference. I put in two symposia ideas. Um, one, was, one was the great debate, which we often do, and that's been accepted, which is great. Um, did I tell you what the, the what it is this year? What the debate is on? No. <laughs> Do you want to know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's it's usually a bit of a you know just tongue in cheek or a bit of controversial topic, and this year it's um it's titled in terms of sleep health, the body clock trumps the upper airway. So it's kind of a little bit of pitting the um the people who are interested in the the success you know the psychology circadian rhythms all that sort of side of things as opposed to the upper airway meaning all the sleep apnea and the respiratory stuff mm-hmm. so we've got two teams assembled and I think I might get them to argue the opposite to what their profession actually oh, is nice. <laughs> so that's good and then also looking at a, a sort of a panel style discussion around how to do big scale public health campaigns what we could learn in the sleep world from the likes of Quit Smoking and Sun Smart, and they're, they're decades ahead of us. Yeah, that sounds because great. Because with the um, you know the parliamentary inquiry, hopefully what will happen is there will be a large-scale public health education and awareness. So, yeah, so that's going to be good, a panel discussion around that as well. Fantastic. What about you? What's been keeping you busy? So we're really fortunate to be able to run some education for trainee sleep specialists in Victoria, and that uh, ran recently. And myself and Dr John Sweeker, we put it together. And we just had a great day. You know, we were very fortunate to have Sean Kane from Monash University. Oh, who's, big you know, gun. Exactly. <laughs> you know, really at the forefront of research into light and the circadian yeah. rhythm. And, and a great speaker. And a great It'd speaker. A bit of fun too. So he really yeah. anchored things in terms of a lot of the science for us. But yeah, yeah it was really good. And I, I just love that sort of teaching and helping sort of teach the next generation about how to yeah. manage people with sleep problems. And psychological? Did you make- did you touch on that? I did. So <laughs> I gave a bit of a sleep 101 at the start of the day. Yeah. So really trying to get that, how do we conceptualise sleep? And mm. Busting some of the myths about sleep so that people can do some of that psychoeducation. Yeah. That's, that's really the cornerstone of how we get people sleeping better yeah. is getting them to better understand And managing sleep. expectations. Exactly. Manage expectations good, by good. busting the myths good, and good letting to hear. them things. <laughs> So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep in menopause. And I don't need to tell people that menopause can be a challenging time for sleep. And sometimes it's hard to tease out how much might be an ageing effect or a stage of life effect from just being busy versus what's attributable to menopause. But for many women, menopause can really make a difference between sleep, you know, just working and it just not working at all across that transition. So what do you see, Moira, in people around menopause? Oh, it's, I'm so glad we're doing this episode. It's so long. It's so overdue, isn't it? I see that it's an area that it, it's often the person's first experience with poor sleep. Certainly their first experience often of coming to talk to someone about sleep or, or any, you know, a health professional at all. They've usually sailed, some of them have sailed through life with not too many health problems and they hit menopause 
and um, often they're attributing it to menopause. Sometimes they're not and they're surprised when we start talking about where you are, you know, are you have, where are you with menopause. But I find um, this one need to know more. I, I need to know more about it. I think that we, well, I certainly don't know enough about sleep and menopause and because it is hard to tease out exactly what the contributing factors are because as you say sometimes it can be that peak time with they're more senior at work they've got still got dependent children aging parents and all the pressure of that can be a big factor and that the heat at night or heat night and day but that the factor obviously it's really hard to sleep when you're waking all the time with all that re- regulation of your temperature and yeah so it's and then and the aging effects anyway just as you said it's hard to know how much is menopause so the approach really has been trying to normalize things trying to just say look at yeah, within the difficulties that are there Let's see what we can, what, what sleep you can get. Try a lot of self care, a lot of um, managing expectations, a lot of saying that it just might be pretty awful for some time. Educating them around um, not being too reliant on medication, but that's obviously it's not outside of my expertise anyway. But really going hard on the cognitive, behavioural, emotional, mindfulness sort of strategies. Because the hormonal changes in menopause is not your and I's expertise, and that's the bit we have trouble with. We've got an endocrinologist. So that's what Sonia Davison is going to help us out with. Sonia has a special interest in women's health. She's an endocrinologist and president-elect of the Australasian Menopause Society. So thanks a lot, Sonia, for helping us out with the podcast. You're welcome. What sort of changes occur across the menopause for women? Uh, well, it starts maybe for some even 10 years before menopause. So menopause is the last egg and the last menstrual period. But hormones unwind in probably the 10 years before that, and estrogen levels start to fluctuate quite a lot. The typical age of perimenopause is about 47, so little five years before menopause, uh, but some women it can even start from about the age of 40. When estrogen levels start to fluctuate, uh, that's when you can start to get symptoms, and by the time of menopause, your estrogen level, which is the main estrogen we have is estradiol, it bottoms out. So throughout reproductive life, your estradiol level was about 400. At menopause, that's 20, which is quite a dive. Um, But there's a huge amount of fluctuation in the years as those eggs are running out and the pituitary is trying to do what it always did, and that's get the ovaries to make estrogen. And and women uh, have symptoms in this time, quite marked symptoms, and they can include flushes and night sweats and sleep disturbance, which is the focus of today. Uh, but also mood instability just because those levels start to fluctuate wildly. And then after menopause, when the levels are very uh, low, women can have ongoing symptoms, which are really quite uh, drastic in some women. 20% get severe symptoms. 20% of women will have no symptoms and every other woman will be somewhere in the middle. And what sort of impact can that have on people? Huge, absolutely huge. So a woman goes through life, puberty is challenging, as, as we most of us know who go through that. Reproductive life, you sort of get into your rhythm, you know what you're doing, and you know there's life challenges and career challenges and whatever in all of that. But then for women, when they're in their 40s, typically these hormonal fluctuations start and sleep disturbance can happen, mood disturbance can happen, they can have flushes and sweats, they can have anxiety, they can have crankiness, they can have low mood. Uh, they can have all sorts of other symptoms, urinary symptoms, joint aches and pains. It doesn't sound fun, does it? And for some women, it just is not fun. Uh, and some women can end up 
being almost suicidal. Uh, they have such intense symptoms and I think a large part of perimenopause and menopause that causes women's quality of life to reduce is that they have an impact on sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some of the things or the most common thing that women will describe to me is the hot flashes. But I wonder whether that's just the most obvious thing or the thing that gets attributed to menopause. Are there other features apart from the hot flashes? Uh, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, And when they've done some very interesting research, they've actually shown that women have a lot more temperature dysregulation than they actually can detect in the form of a hot flush or night switch. Some women drench a beach towel at night through perimenopause and menopause. They're sweating so much. I mean, that that's just absurd, isn't it? A, a terrible physiological, you know, normal. It's This is normal. But to, to drench a beach towel and have to wake up and sort of wrench it out uh, and have to change pyjamas, change sheets, etc. I think that's just a a horrible thing to have to go through. And many women do. Uh, That's when women need help, when they're not sleeping, when they're having debilitating flushes and sweats. Uh, But there's, there's lots of symptoms here. There's a terrible symptom like crawling under the skin. It's called formication. So it's like ants crawling under the skin. And that can be associated with restless legs as well, which of course can happen overnight and that can be disruptive to sleep as well. So it's not just about flushes and, and people can think, oh, menopause, oh, you just get a bit warm. Uh, and in fact, the flush itself that has a very interesting physiology as well. There's a sort of pre-prodrome uh, to the flush. They can feel very anxious. They can have palpitations. They know it's going coming on. They think people are looking at them. And it can be this very uh, sort of exhaustive, intense experience that can last five minutes or so. And, and that can happen hundreds of times uh, per week for the women who are most severely affected. Yeah, I saw someone today who was describing hot flushes and sort of wondering what it might be doing to sleep, and she's about to have a sleep study, actually. And I said to her, look, there is a bit of a signature physiologically that we can see, you know, even in a sleep study, if we look at heart rate, you see these variations in heart rate, this increase in sympathetic activity that precedes the awakening from the hot flush. So it's not just that feeling of heat. There is this whole sympathetic activity that underpins that, that's going to give rise to those anxiety symptoms and other symptoms of dysregulation that occur as part of it. There is definitely a sympathetic link to all of this, but we haven't out. We, there's lots and lots and lots of research being done, but we haven't actually totally worked this out yet. We know there's something central, uh, and we know that the sympathetic nervous system is involved, and we know that the symptoms do start to happen at night. So, for example, in perimenopause, when estrogen levels are starting to sort of bottom out a bit as you head towards menopause, women can start to get flushes and sweats, even though they might be having regular menstrual cycles, but they can happen when their estrogen levels start to dip low uh, just before the menses start. So we talked a bit about hot flashes. One of the things I find hard to tease out in sort of women of the, you know, in their 40s and 50s is how much is just the natural progression of sleep getting lighter as all of us age versus the changes in sleep from reduction in hormone levels. You got any secrets for me of how I can tease those things apart? I think some people are just terrible sleepers and you see them. I see the hormonal ones and try and fix the hormones. But some women definitely say, 
I slept well before and with all of the hormonal changes at perimenopause or when they've got to menopause, it was like a light was switched, uh, you know, you know, the, the light switch was turned and they, they just couldn't sleep anymore. So I think there's lots. Do, do you know the other thing is women around menopause, well, the median age of menopause in Australia at least is 51 to 52 years. So at that sort of age, most people are working. Most people have parents who are getting older and most people will have probably still dependent children or children in their 20s, et cetera, who they worry about because they go out at night partying or they come home at three in the morning. So I think there is a lot more that can impact sleep. So there's the ageing process, there's the hormonal changes, uh, there's other health concerns as well that can happen around this time too, but there's also the life situation. And women are doing a lot. Uh, we never used to do so much, but but now we are doing all of those different roles and that's great, but something unravels uh, and often the quality of life will unravel when, when women don't sleep. Yeah, it's a really good point because I absolutely agree with you. The sort of stage of life for high risk for insomnia is all of those factors. Busyness, busyness in the professional world, busyness at home, responsibilities, caring for both parents and kids. And so at the same time women are trying to negotiate menopause, it is that phase of life where they're at the highest risk of insomnia. And one of the risk factors for acute insomnia turning into chronic insomnia and getting anxious about sleep is ability to regulate emotion and deal with anxiety. And if if that's a piece of the menopause too that that makes that a little bit more challenging, it's just this this milieu that's going to develop an anxiety about sleep and fuel and insomnia. Some women don't have the flushes and and sweats, but may have terrible anxiety around menopause and perimenopause or low mood and a lot of crankiness as well, uh, and also the sleep disturbance. So some women will come to me uh, around this age because a GP has cleverly referred them thinking, well, I think this is hormonal. And some of those women really will respond extremely well to hormone therapy. So that is a really good option for helping both the anxiety, flushes and sweats if they have them, and also the sleep disturbance. Some of my ladies don't have a mood disturbance, don't really have flushes and sweats, but their sleep is terrible and they're purely on hormone therapy because it helps them to sleep. Yeah, I agree. And I think for for those, exactly like you said, where there's that stepwise change in sleep that coincides with um, menopause, and it's not necessarily driven by hot flushes, just this reduction in sleep length, sleep quality, sleep continuity, and you add back in hormone replacement therapy and it seems to be a panacea for sleep and help for sleep. Uh, it certainly uh, can be really useful for, for some women. Not all women, uh, and it's not suitable for everyone. Some women can't have hormone therapy. But when women come and sit down in my uh, consulting room, after being on their hormone therapy for the first three months. And when they say, I feel normal and I can manage again, I can sleep. And just the three words, I feel normal, uh, they're so important. You you don't realise that those words are really important until really uh, you don't feel normal anymore. And menopause is normal. Perimenopause is normal. And people uh, sort of say, why are you medicalising this? Why are you trying to give treatments for, for a normal uh part of life, but uh, is it normal to be having dependent children, to be working, to have uh, ageing parents and be caring for them and to be in a busy world where you're always stuck in queues, in traffic, everything is monitored by a device and we're not meant to be living like this, I think. So that's where definitely we need to chuck in whatever we can 
uh, to help help women at this time. Yeah. So then give us a look under the hood. So try and give us an idea of when you're going to sort of counsel someone, it's okay, hang in there, versus, okay, you've crossed a threshold and I'm going to look at prescribing hormone replacement therapy. So how do you sort of pick that gradation and where do you draw that line? It's about managing. I go through all of the um, – there's, there's a beautiful symptom score on the Australasian Menopause Society website that looks at typical menopausal symptoms and I'll often go through something like that with them or I'll get them to do it and they come back the next time and it's looking at typical menopausal symptoms and, and I sort of go through each symptom and I, I think, well, do they have it? Do they not have it? Is it severe? And the things that are really bothersome are the mood instability, the sleep disturbance and the drenching sweats at night. If a woman says, I can do this, I'm all right, thank you for telling me about this normal process, I think I'm okay, well, that's all good. But if she's sitting in the chair with me crying and she says, I've got all of that and I can't go on anymore, then there's definitely, I start to talk about hormone therapy. And there's a lot, it's a minefield to talk about hormone therapy. A woman instantly thinks, HRT equals breast cancer, and that's not quite right. So there's a lot of important counselling. And, and again, women want to be natural. They want to be normal. They want to feel well. Uh, menopause can sort of unravel that a bit, and uh, hormone therapy is a very important part of this for some women who who can be frightened. And some health practitioners are also frightened about prescribing hormone therapy. We, we used to be very good at it in the 90s and early 2000s, and then the newer generation of, of GPs, I think, are not as good as uh, and as not as comfortable as prescribing hormone therapy around this time. Yeah, it's certainly, as you say, it's a complex area and there's a literature around risks, benefits, and some, an expert like yourself is well-versed in having that discussion with people that may not be as easy for a non-expert. It gets harder. Every new study is another piece of evidence that I know because I do this all day long and it's what I do, but For a GP sitting there who has to know everything about everyone from babies to 99-year-olds, that you can't know it all. Uh, And that's when I think if really uh, general practitioners don't get that area or or, or know, well, I think hormone therapy might help, that's when referring off is totally appropriate. Like like for you with with sleep, when when someone doesn't sleep and the GPs reach the end of what they're comfortable with and what they know, uh, it's appropriate to refer off. And there's some great information out there. The Australasian Menopause Society has 30 different information sheets about things like sleep, hormone therapy, other body changes that happen around menopause, osteoporosis, et cetera, as well. And Jean Hales for Women's Health has a really good website, uh, really aimed at lay people, but there are also some uh, webinars and things for health professionals, uh, again, looking at anything about women's health, but also with a good focus on menopause, hormone therapy, uh, and I think there might be a little bit of sleep stuff in there, but I'm going to check that. So yeah, we happy, can... <laughs> happy to help you bolster that if you need to. But yeah, I had, I had a look at those resources, you know, as part of preparing for this, and you're right, great resources. So I'll put links to those in the notes for people. Give me an idea about the decisions made. Okay, we're going to start hormone replacement therapy. What does that mean in terms of length? Is that a, okay, we're going to bridge across a certain period of time, or is it a indefinite thing? So what does that look like for somebody? Uh, it's, it's like a piece of string, David. 20% of women get severe symptoms, 20% of women get no symptoms, and 20% of women uh, have symptoms that last for more than five years. So it can be a very intense burst of symptoms around the time of menopause, and that can leave very quickly. 
But I had a 59-year-old lady uh, just yesterday actually saying that, you know, when is this going to stop? And I've also had women in their mid-60s saying, when are these flushes and sweats and sleep disturbance, et cetera, going to stop? So the hormone therapy is useful for when symptoms are bothersome. I try and reduce the dose of hormone therapy uh, at some point and say, well, we've done this for now. We've got through that. Let's try and review the situation. Let's try and reduce your dose now and see what the symptoms are. I'd always do it really slowly so that there's not that sort of cold turkey, instantaneous, I've got no hormones, and then the symptoms uh, I think are at risk of, of hugely increasing after that. So we've spoken about hormone replacement therapy. What else? Outside of hormone replacement therapy, what other therapies or strategies are there? It's about good health. So menopause is a really good time for me to look at someone who's about 50, which is midlife, see what her symptoms are because that's what's brought her to sit with me, try and address those symptoms and then also plan uh, for the rest of her health life, which is I'm really worried about bone health from from the age of menopause on and I'm also worried about cardiovascular disease because that's the killer of 33% of, of women in Australia at least. There are lots of symptoms, uh, there are lots of treatment for, for different symptoms uh, there are pelvic floor exercises, for example, can happen, help any urinary or vaginal symptoms. There is vaginal moisturizers if there's vaginal dryness. There is vaginal estrogen, which doesn't give a systemic uh, spread, but can help vaginal symptoms, which is one of the common things that women have around menopause. Healthy lifestyles, so not being overweight. So when you've got more insulation, you're going to get more flushes and sweats. So reducing fat mass, and that's also going to improve health. And if you do a lot of exercise, I think, well, at at the right time of day, of course, David, uh, you're more likely to be tired at night. And then I think you'll sleep better as well. But I'm sure those those studies on evening exercise a bit overstated, actually, of the negative effects of evening exercise. Oh, that's good. I'm. And, and actually show any exercise any times better than none. So I'll, I settle for some evening exercise. I Do you know what? Some of my ladies get up at six o'clock. They get everything ready for the family. They drive in traffic. They're stuck there. They go to work. They're there all day. And then they turn up home again at 7, 7.30, have to do the dinners, have to do everything else. They're exhausted. How can you exercise in all of that? It's just not pragmatic for the average working normal woman to actually, and it's cruel to say, oh, you should be doing 30 minutes of exercise a day. Uh, It's just very difficult for women to do it. Uh, So I try and just get them to do whatever they can do for for their lifestyle. Uh, There's lots of others. So some women will come with anxiety around the time of menopause and perimenopause, but aren't suitable for hormone therapy because uh, they've had breast cancer or they've had a stroke or heart disease or whatever. So the SSRI group of medications are very useful for control of anxiety and depression. But again, women have this stigma, oh, you're handing me an antidepressant uh, for symptoms that I'm having because I'm menopausal or perimenopausal. So, you know, some women don't like to take that as well. Uh, There's lots of other things. So in terms of bone health, we want to make sure they're having enough vitamin D. We want to make sure there's enough calcium in their diet. It really will depend on the individual symptom that is bothering a a woman the most. So often for sleep, we sort of think of insomnia as it'll have a biological basis. And then often there's change thinking and behavior around sleep that can amplify and perpetuate symptoms. So that's part of the role of CBT, for example, for insomnia. Is there a similar role for 
uh, menopausal symptoms. So there's the biological symptoms, but then you, maybe there's some amplification of the response in terms of how people might respond psychologically. Do you ever use CBT or psychology-based strategies? Those strategies are very useful. And there's a lovely book by Myra Hunter, who's based in the UK, who uh, looked at cognitive behavioural therapy for menopause. And I reviewed this book because I thought, how can CBT actually help change a physiological flush or a sweat? Well, of course it doesn't, but it helps how the women deal with that, how they process it, how they uh, how they respond to it. And after reviewing this book, I thought this is a really good strategy. Women can do this. We can do this when we can't use hormone therapy. Uh, and that would be a really, really good approach. Of course, it's finding someone who can do it. That's the other issue and finding the time. And But uh, there are self-health cognitive behavioural therapy books out there for women and some online as well, uh, which can be targeted for menopausal symptoms, but also absolutely for sleep. And that's very important. And counselling just in general. Uh, if a woman has anxiety around the time of perimenopause and menopause or depression or crankiness, and relationships are struggling because of that. Absolutely seeing someone who has a focus, uh, a background in sort of psychological counselling in this situation, that can be extremely useful just to know this is normal, knowing the strategies that can work and having just that support, I, I think, can be extremely beneficial to women too. Thanks very much for your help, Sonia. I think that's really helped clarify a lot of the underpinnings of menopause and some strategies that women can use. Oh, delightful. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for that interview. Thanks, Sonia, too. That's really, really useful. I think that's um, it's long overdue, as I said. Uh, sort of the take-homes, I guess, what, what would, on the basis of your discussion with Sonia, what would you do differently now? Or does it change anything with your approach? So it does change my approach a bit, really recognising that, yes, if I'm managing someone with sleep problems around the menopause, there is the psychological components and behavioural components that I want to target with CBT. But there's also a biological component too and got to be cognizant of that and got to have an understanding of that, which thank you, I've got a better understanding now having spoken to Sonia and recognise that that's a part of it in the same way as someone outside of the menopause. I think of insomnia as being multifaceted and I want to change somebody's thinking around sleep, their behaviour around sleep, think of some of their thinking styles and trait characteristics. Mm. The extra bit to add around the menopause is, okay, where are they at biologically mm. with the menopause and how may that be an additional factor that's modulating their symptoms? Absolutely. and I mean, it should be part of everyone's um, first appointment really, isn't it? Especially a woman in her 40s and 50s. It should be like where, where are you at with menopause? So if people are looking for more information about uh, menopause and its impacts on sleep, the Australasian Menopause Society has some really great videos about menopause in general that are matched by some handouts and resources for health professionals. So we took advantage of the fact that Sonia was with us to get a clinical tip for health professionals working with women across the menopause. Just to be aware that women in their mid-40s and maybe early 40s and around the time of 50 will be having hormonal fluctuations and will probably be nearing perimenopause or menopause. Some of them will have bothersome symptoms there are strategies that can help them. There are a number of resources out there. Just be mindful that it's not all about sleep, but it may be about flushes, sweats, quality of life and mood. 
finding a women's health expert, I think, is the best option uh, for these women and then targeting their treatment to the symptoms that bother them. So it's the pick of the month. What's your pick of the month, Dave? So my pick of the month is sort of something I came across trying to work up some future podcast episodes. I'm still struggling with this food and sleep. So they're coming, these episodes. <laughs> so it was part of doing some background reading. So I bought the book Brain Changer by Pro- Professor Felice Jacker. and yes, the um, Deakin Woman Food and Mood Centre. Exactly. Yeah. So Felice is the director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. And her book, Brain Changer, talks about how foods have an impact on anxiety and depression. Mm. So not sleep specifically, but things to do with mental health, as you'd expect from a professor and someone sort of learned and respected. It's well written. It's easy to follow. And you know, I found it a really interesting book. What about for you, Maura? Uh, well, mine was a book too. And um, it was a, it's a little book published by Penguin, a little book paperback. That, and in fact, I was sort of a bit competitive thinking, I wonder whether David's actually read this one. And I bet you have. Have you? Have you? I'm, about no, to, I'm about to tell you what it is. But, but it's in my Amazon cart because <laughs> I saw you had a book I haven't got. <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I thought for once I might have one, a book, because it's only published this year. Yeah. Um, and it's by a guy called Darian Leader, who I didn't know. But he's a British psychoanalyst. And it's called Why We Can't Sleep. And it delves into the history of sleep in a really interesting way. It actually... Uh, it covers Freudian dream analysis and Freud is quoted in the book as saying, I'm an excellent sleeper. I thought, oh, that's interesting. You're going to love it. It's very, you know, very sleep um, geeky. But, you know, the history talks about um, dream analysis, talks about the whole pre, pre, pre-industrial revolution of the two, the, the biphasic sleep. And it's just a really good read, but probably poses more questions than provides answers. But I think that's quite good because that's really a refle- that's probably a true reflection of where we're at in the sleep field anyway. And he does conclude, he, he asks, if we've got so many experts now, so many apps, so many books, so many high-tech mattresses, you name it, why can't we sleep? And he concludes that perhaps there is no such thing as normal sleep. Oh, nice. And I, I thought, I, like mm, that. I think that's probably the conclusion of all our 39 episodes yeah. would would align with that as well. Yeah, chasing an expectation yeah. that's driven by these unrealistic yeah. beliefs yeah. about sleep. Yeah. So, yeah, so check it out. So look out for the next two episodes where I'm finally going to get to food and sleep and how these things interact. So one of the episodes will be about the effect of timing, so when we eat and how that relates both to sleep, energy and health. And the other episode will be about foods to eat that may impact on sleep. So keep an eye out for those. So yeah, I look forward to those food ones. They're also overdue. Um, Very, very interesting. So thanks everyone for listening. It's a pleasure to have your company. Please Keep sending us suggestions at our email address of podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes or subscribe to the podcast. Also, remember that we're now on Spotify. You can find us there. And have a great month and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.